Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robert D. Bernardo, section head of gynecologic oncology. Dr. D. Bernardo established the OBGYN and Women's Health Institute's HIPEC program. He's here today to talk to us about the use of HIPEC for gynecologic cancers. So, Welcome, Rob. Maybe you could start out by telling us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dale. Um, it's so nice to be invited to chat about HIPEC. It's one of my passions. So I guess I've been with the clinic about seven, eight years now, and um, I came from UH. I started a program there. So in terms of HIPEC, it's uh, for those people who might not know the terminology, it's hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy. And it's a a technique that had been used um, in GI cancers, relatively rare GI cancers, um, with some success. And since many of our most challenging gynecologic cancers are perineal surface malignancies, we, you know, there were a number of us across the country and across the world that thought, hey, why not try to apply this same technique for our cancers? And it was started slow, but we now have some really solid data um, in terms of efficacy and certain, uh, certain of uh, patients of ours with ovary cancer. So we can chat a little bit about that today if you like. Perfect. So how does it work? So maybe just uh, walk us through, um, we think about intraperitoneal chemo and we're talking about heated chemo, which, you know, I give a lot of chemo and I never heat it. So uh, maybe a right. little bit about that aspect. What, what, how does this actually work? What's the procedure? I'll, let me talk about the procedure first, and then we'll talk about some of the more interesting rationale of why it might be beneficial or what might be explaining the improvements that we're seeing. So HIPEC is really a technique that's performed in the operating room. So at the time of a surgical debulking uh, of cancer, where you have peritoneal metastasis, um, we're trying to remove all the gross residual disease. And you know, if there is disease left, it has to be a very small volume, maybe one to two millimeters, but um, ideally no gross residual disease. So following that, those radical resections, the administration of typical chemotherapy agents, and for ovary cancer, we'll use cisplatin typically. Some folks are using and carbo. Uh, some people are using Taxol, um, but you can also give adriamycin in either the abdominal cavity or the chest for that matter. So once the surgical debulking is gone, we put tubing in the abdomen, close the abdomen, and then uh, essentially infuse these drugs in that peritoneal dialysis for, uh, for you know, 45, 90, 60 minutes. Here at the clinic, we use a 90-minute protocol. Once the infusion is over, we, you know, rinse the abdominal cavity empty, take the tubing out, and then whatever, if we've done a bowel resection, the bowel will go back together and, and then essentially close. So it adds about an hour and a half to our surgical procedure, maybe a little bit more. Now, we typically, we're monitoring inflow and, and uh, outflow temperatures, and we're, we're trying to achieve about 42 degrees centigrade. And so we're typically going to look for the outflow for that. Does that answer your question, Dale? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's helpful. So um, so this primarily is being used in, in patients after a surgery, but tell us a little bit about other settings um, before surgery. The group of people we have the best data for are people with epithelial ovarian cancer, so the typical garden variety high-grade ovary cancers. Most of these women are going to present with advanced stage disease, as many of you guys know, and Typically, um, they're going to require both systemic chemotherapy and surgery. Um, it's controversial a bit 
if that surgery starts first or if we give a, some induction chemotherapy. But regardless, there is very solid data from randomized controlled trials where people that get induction chemotherapy, so after three or four cycles of Taxol and Platinum, if you take them to the operating room, debulk their, their residual cancer, and then give them HIPEC. It improves overall survival and progression-free survival significantly with no increase in morbidity or mortality, which is really good. So um, so that's in terms of our newly diagnosed ovary cancers, primarily how it's being used for those, that subset of people that are not debulkable on presentation, either because of their age or because of the disease burden. If they have a good response, then they're great candidates. There are some centers that are using it upfront. So somebody presents, they have a big ovary cancer, we debulk them and giving them that. I'm not a fan of that for a number of reasons. Those people tend to be pretty compromised. And so getting them through a big the bulking surgery with multivessel organ resections is challenging. Um, we don't always even have pathology except for a frozen section when we're making these decisions. So I'm a little leery about that um, and the added time. So you're taking a surgery that may be four or five hours and then adding another hour and a half to it. So some centers have done it. But um, again, we don't have really solid data that it's beneficially upfront setting. The other area where I've used it, um, and it would be interesting to look, is in consolidation. So for patients who have not have had surgery and chemotherapy, typically intravenous, uh, for consolidation. So now they're done with their therapy; they're essentially cancer-free. Putting a scope in, and then this procedure can be performed laparoscopically as well. Um, and I have a handful of patients who've done extremely well. Clearly, that's not data, but um, it is certainly something that potentially warrants further study. And are we doing studies here at the clinic with uh, HIPEC? We are. We actually, we have a, a, a lot of interesting things going on. So we have a lab, and in the lab, we have ovarian cancer cell lines uh, that platinum-resistant and platinum-sensitive, which um, we're looking at. We also have developed an animal model where we can mimic what we're doing a little bit more realistically than in cell culture. And we also have um, a trial that's on hold right now, but we have a trial where these women who have had um, neoadjuvant chemo and are going for their interval cellular reduction and getting HIPEC, we have a really cool protocol. What we're doing is leaving a portion of the omental tumor behind. So we sample a half of the omental tumor right before we give HIPEC, and then we give HIPEC, and that second half of the tumor comes out after HIPEC. So we have the same exact tumor 90 minutes apart. We sort that by cell type, and then we do sequencing of all the RNA changes and, and stuff. And what's really fascinating is we've, I think, done five or six patients so far. The shift in what's happening in these tumor cells and the microenvironment is fascinating. This is really there's a lot of immunologic change that we're seeing that has not really been described. So a lot of cool stuff going on in terms of lab work and some basic science, because the interesting thing is we have solid clinical data for upfront patients, like we talked about, also for patients in the recurrent setting. If they're going back to the operating room, HIPEC improves progression-free and overall survival in randomized controlled trials, which is hard to move the bar with ovary cancer. So, But we don't really know how this works. Um, so that's what our lab is, is trying to sort out some of the mechanisms through which this may be occurring. Is this driven by immunologic uh, mechanisms only, or is this increased platinum adduction, or is the, we, we don't really know. So a lot of really interesting things, I think, are going on. I'm going to ask uh, what might be an obvious question that people might be wondering. Why heated? So what's the, what's the advantage of that? 
so the thing about heat is fascinating. And this comes from like Dr. Sugarbaker, who, who I think many of us consider the grandfather of this therapy, um, I think initially started to heat this because he was dealing with a lot of these low-grade mucinous tumors and pseudomyxomas and thought, oh, the heat might help like with, you know, jello kind of uh, make it a little more liquefied. Um, but what happens when you look at this in the lab Heat will do a number of things, and, and, and we've shown in our data that it increases heat shock proteins, but that's probably not what's necessarily driving the response. We do know that the penetration of platinum into these tumors is significantly higher with the addition of heat. So somewhere on the order of five or tenfold higher concentrations just from the addition of heat. So heat itself may be cytotoxic, well, is cytotoxic at a high enough level. It may impair the cancer cell's ability to repair the damage. And we know clearly that it's Im impacting the penetration of these tumors. So when you give a platinum drug intravenously, you can see that that effect in the center of the tumor, but not on the periphery. And so when you give these drugs intraperitoneal, these platinum drugs will actually penetrate through the peritoneal surface, then get absorbed systemically through the peritoneal cavity. So you kind of are treating twice the tumor because you can't penetrate as deeply with simply IV fluid and the heat increases the amount of distance that they can penetrate as well as the number of platinum adducts that we're seeing. So I, mechanistically, that's what's been proposed. Uh, what we've learned from our data is that there's also a, a immunologic response, which um, may be at, in play. Now, in the GI arena, which is where I've encountered HIPEC more frequently, um, you always think about this being peritoneal disease. And if a patient has visceral disease, you may want to avoid this. So what does that look like with the tumors you treat? Can you do combination approaches or what, what if someone has a liver met or a lung met? Is this something that's off the table or how do you approach that? So it's very much on a case-by-case -case basis. I, our data for ovary cancer is pretty well established. Surgery where we can optimally cite or reduce somebody is beneficial to their long-term outcomes. So if they have an isolated liver met and it can be resected, and it leaves them with no gross residual disease or minimal gross residual disease, then it's probably beneficial. Now, if they're 85 and have multiple medical problems, it's a different story. You always have to balance, obviously, the morbidity with, with what you're um, doing to get somebody optimal. So we don't typically explore people's chests. I mean, the, the folks at Sloan Kettering are doing that. If they have pe people they think have disease in the chest, they'll start with a VATS. And if they have you know, disease, they'll try to debulk that. And if they're successful, then go into the abdomen. But those are, to be honest, relatively rare patients. Most people that have significant burden of disease in the chest are rendered not optimally debulkable based on what's going on in their abdomen and pelvis as well. So, but it's interesting you mentioned that because the quality of surgery varies dramatically across the country. Certain centers are, you know, just much more aggressive and they're, they have either the expertise in this G1 oncology program or have teams of surgeons that, that can render these people uh, with no residual disease or minimal residual disease where other programs just don't have that expertise. So the surgical effort is, is a big part of it. So you mentioned other programs. How how common is this? So, you know, as we talk to people who may be across the country, how how common is it that they may have access to this kind of procedure? Not actually terribly common, which is unfortunate. I, let me just back up for one second because um, probably what was in two thousand and six or maybe a little later than that, you know, we did a, a huge randomized trial in ovary cancer uh, where we randomly assigned women with ovary cancer to surgery followed by IV chemotherapy versus intraperitoneal chemotherapy without heat. 
Um, and that was a tremendously impactful study where we shifted overall survival and progression-free survival by a year and a half. And yet very few programs started giving intraperitoneal chemotherapy. And uh, the rationale was, oh, it's too, you know, a little bit more toxic and it's one study. And the fact is, is that it's complicated and difficult to give because it would require a hospitalization with every cycle and then coming back in a week later and things. It's the same thing with HIPEC. If an institution has a HIPEC program because they're using it for GI malignancies, it's relatively easy to you know, spin that and start taking care of ovary cancer patients. But if not, it's a pretty big, heavy lift. I mean, um, when I started my, my first program, it was challenging because there's a lot of just things you don't think about, you know, pumps and infusionists and, and chemotherapy dosings and protocols and the morbidity we don't really know about. So it's a pretty heavy lift to create a program de novo. Um, so I will tell you, there are probably, my guess would be one in 20 programs in the country if that offer it, and that might be even generous. So you're going to find it at some big centers, but not all. I, I think we're certainly the largest program in Ohio, hands down in terms of HIPEC, and one of the largest in the country that, that offer it. So it sounds like a therapy that certainly can provide good benefit to patients. We'll talk about toxicity in a second. Um, who and you talked about the patients that that benefit, but if if we're if someone's listening and you know who's the patient that might be most benefited by you know a visit here to the Cleveland Clinic to talk to you guys about incorporating this? So is there an ideal patient that you would say should come here? Of course. So there's two people that need to be considered. Anybody who has newly diagnosed ovary cancer who is getting chemotherapy upfront. That surgery that they're going to get after their third cycle typically is really important. And that's where HIPEC has been shown to significantly improve progression-free and overall survival. So if they're getting treated in, say, Nevada, and they're getting their chemo there and their surgery is planned for three months down the road, it would be worth them giving us a call. We can do a virtual visit and then coming into town, having their surgery, having their high back, and then they recover and they're back on their normal chemotherapy at home three weeks after surgery, four weeks after surgery. Again, it doesn't increase the morbidity. It's a little bit longer in the OR, but it, the morbidity is the same as their surgery. So I will tell you, I think somebody like that would be an ideal candidate. You come in or you know, if it's not the clinic, some center that's doing it because it's, it's certainly an added benefit. The other people that potentially benefit from this would be somebody with recurrent disease. Now, most often when people with ovary cancer recur, they're going to have an abdominal recurrence. And oftentimes it's, you know, multifocal with peritoneal carcinomatosis. Those are generally not the best candidates. There's a subset of those women, though, that have what I call oligometastatic disease. So maybe they have a splenic met and an omental tumor, or maybe a pelvic mass. If it's surgically resectable. We've shown in, again, randomized trials that surgically resecting that and giving them HIPEC improves outcomes dramatically, not just progression-free survival, but overall survival. So certainly worth a look at. It's a little trickier because I would tell you most people in the new adjuvant setting would benefit from HIPEC. That was the first group we talked about. Uh, in a recurrent setting, it's a little different. And then again, in that small subset of patients, 
Patients with platinum-resistant disease are probably our worst prognosis patients. So for those people that are listening, uh, just to define a term, so we have patients with ovary cancer, we always treat with platinum, and we typically give them platinum-based agents with recurrence after recurrence until they become resistant to those drugs. And at that point, we know that the clock is ticking because they have about six, eight, 12 months um, to live. In that setting, there are some patients that have surgically resectable disease with platinum resistance. And then we know, again, from randomized data, that addition of HIPEC changes that curve and now puts them back on a platinum sensitive survival curve. So the biggest improvement we see is in platinum resistant patients, which ties back into the work that we're doing in the lab where we can penetrate these tumors and get more platinum drug in. So whatever resistance mechanism they have, if it's pumping it out or, or whatever it is, or repairing the DNA damage, it's overwhelmed probably by the heat and the administration of peritoneal chemo so that we're seeing improved outcomes. So again, it's a, it's a very, that, that rubric is a little bit more complicated depends on obviously their disease status and, and how fit they are. But that's there's a, a number of patients that we really significantly helped um, with that approach. So Rob, you mentioned that second category of recurrent patients. Is there a dependence on whether they are platinum resistant or refractory in that group? So refractory um, would be really challenging. And those are the, obviously, the refractory patients, patients who progress on primary chemo. Um, they're really hard. And I have to tell you, I've been doing HIPEC for probably 12 years now. Um, there may have been one patient that, that we did, because most of them are, are just too sick and their disease is too extensive um, that they're not likely to benefit from it. So the platinum-resistant folks, um, there are, you know, there are a number that fit into that category where HIPEC will help. Although, again, in the subset of platinum-resistant patients, it's going to be the minority. But it's, uh, it's certainly worth noting because oftentimes when you have refractory patients, people start thinking about, you know, as aggressive a therapy as possible. Right. So. And so, again, it's, it's always worth looking at these folks um, because, again, there's a lot of therapies that we can offer. I mean, a lot of excitement has been going on with PARP inhibition um, for our ovary cancer patients. But what's fascinating, and, and, and Peter is, we're just about to publish a paper on our experience with PARPs. Um, I mean, all the literature out there and, and the drug companies are, are selling these as these are phenomenal drugs, but there's not yet one study that's shown it's improved overall survival. Everything moves progression-free survival, even substantially, but when the data matures, we're not seeing improvement in overall survival. And that's probably driven by the fact that these are chemo drugs. They don't want to market them as chemo drugs, but they're chemo. And when you have your patient who recurs ultimately on a PARP, um, either their bone marrow can't handle further chemo or you're driving to a platinum resistant state without using a platinum. So it's really interesting because our data supports that point of view that these folks after extended PARP use don't respond terribly well. So that's why in, in you know, the world of cancer, progression-free survival is super important, but ultimately the, the measure is going to be overall survival in the end. Right. Now you mentioned PARP, you know, certainly there's lots of interest in immunotherapies, um, has there been a move toward thinking about combining HIPEC with those things like PARP and immunotherapy? Oh, yeah. So um, what's interesting is with immunotherapy and ovary cancer for all comers, response rates are probably 8%, which is pretty terrible. 
um, you know, there's some interesting data looking at the combination of PARP and immunotherapy, um, PARPs and, and VEGF inhibitors um, and immunotherapy. So there's all these interesting combinations we're looking at in, um, you know, in studies right now to try to improve immunotherapy for this group of patients. So yes, HIPEC um, and addition of those things, I think are going to be interesting. But what's fascinating, what we've learned from our, it's very preliminary data that our um, immune response that we're seeing in our HIPEC patients is all B cell driven, not T cell driven. So it's an interesting story that's unfolding because um, we have hundreds of thousands of points of data to look at in these in these folks. But you know, the big picture thing is we may be driving an immune response that we're not you know typically expecting. Um, so the answer to that question is, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things, and most of the work has been done um, with platinum. Um, we I give my patients with ovary cancer taxol as well, um, and we don't know how that mechanism is happening. Again, we have data from our cohorts of ovary cancer patients that have gotten taxane and a platinum and cisplatin at, at their surgery versus platinum alone. And it, it looks like, and again, the data hasn't matured completely, but there's a pretty significant trend of those folks that get both taxol and platinum at HIPEC are doing better. So it's interesting because the randomized trial that was done just used cisplatin. No, there was no taxol in that. Gotcha. Well, You've provided some great insight today on the use of HIPEC and novel ways to treat these uh, patients. Do you have any additional comments? We're working pretty hard to try to educate G1 oncologists and, and help them develop programs. We've um, you know, assisted with um, growing programs across the country. We have a program started in Texas, another one in Montana, another one in California. So we're, we're creating a consortium of all these folks um, and trying to support their growth. You know, I think it's a promising technique, but I'm afraid just like normal thermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy, despite the benefit, it's going to be a heavy lift um, because I, I really think that physicians, are they're just more comfortable writing a prescription for uh, chemotherapy than they are to actually, you know, do something like this in the operating room. So we're going to continue to work hard and develop it. And, you know, as more data come out, uh, especially data from the lab and understanding how it's work could impact significantly how we're giving this down the road. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you about this stuff. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.